Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded on March 21st, 2013 at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. The theme for the evening was authority. All right, we're going to keep rolling. Your next storyteller is the program manager at the C Film Center right down the road. He's been doing it forever. He's practically a Denver institution. And in 2012, Westward named him Denver's best film advocate. Please welcome Keith Garcia. did not write anything, which may prove to be a huge mistake. Let me get up here. All right, take my stand. Um, gosh, I guess since this is authority, the idea is that I'm an authority on things like film, which, uh, as he was saying earlier, I kind of feel like a fraud every day about that. Movies are kind of the universal thing where everybody watches them. Everyone says, I like that. I don't like that. So to put me in a position or I'm saying you will like that, uh, is a little weird to me. But um, it's a job that I love, um, and it's kind of an authority level that I'm comfortable with because ultimately I'm hiring and firing movies all the time is really what it is, not actual people. Um, and my drive to sort of be an authority figure on film and keep this job uh, comes from a time when I was an actual authority figure um, around film. I, fresh out of um, a failed year and a half at Bard College, where I went to uh, pursue my dream of filmmaking, um, I came back home to Denver, Colorado, and said, you know what I want to do? I just want to live in the box office of the Mayan Theater and sell tickets to everybody. This was 1996. I believe is when that was. So I got the job. I was a box officer um, with OCD. I made sure that box office sparkled. The carpet around was perfectly clean. Um, it was probably that OCD that led me to eventually be running the Mayan Theater within a year and a half's time, which I still, that's a blur of a year, or a year and a half. Don't ask me about it, because I can't tell you everything that happened then. But uh, eventually I was the house manager of the Mayan Theater, which brought along with it being in charge of budgets, being in charge of a management staff, being in charge of the staff, uh, making sure people don't sexual harass, uh, making sure the movies start on time, making sure everything happens the way it's supposed to be as adults who have jobs and for a customer service job where people are paying money to come in and have a good time. Well, I had a good, I guess it was probably about a good year and a half being a house manager, taking care of this place, I brought my OCD qualities at the box office to my team so that the Mayan sparkled like never before. Um, sadly, it hurts me every day that it kind of looks like the Casa Bonita of movie theaters right now, but I can't do anything about that. Um, <laughs> so I had a really good team. I had a staff that really loved me because I'm nice. If there's anything anyone can say about me, it's I'm a nice guy. Um, you know, I was never too harsh. Yeah, we had budget problems. I tried to fix them, tried to do the best we could. We had great movies that came in. We were dealing with turnover, you know, 
And in one busy day, you'd have 300 people come through your doors, and you've got to have your staff serve them, and everyone's, everything's just got to go perfectly. Well, we got ourselves up to a place where we could kick back and just be like, any movie that comes in here and is a success, this is the best team for it. Everyone's going to have a good time from the time they buy their ticket to it's torn, to they get their popcorn, to they sit down and they watch the movie and they leave. Theater's going to get cleaned, everything's going to be reset, and it'll be perfect for the next day. So we were a pretty good theater, um, had some good runs of stuff. And then, God, it was such a different time in independent film. 1999, the summer happened, and a little movie called The Blair Witch Project <laughs> rolled onto the scene. Um, and 1999, was, I mean, it's a long time ago, but still not, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, film was just different, and this was a title that was given to us at the Mayan Theater to play, and we were the only theater in the four-state area to play this movie that was built upon scads and scads and scads of buzz and anticipation, uh, which basically meant that four states' worth of people wanted to come to our theater um, the minute it opened that summer. So we got the theater ready. We knew we were going to be busy. Got things clean. Got to make sure we had enough staff. It's going to be playing on two screens, so in the big house and then one of the little dinky houses upstairs. And we were not prepared for what happened. What followed after that, we had a two-week exclusive on this film, meaning that no other theater in four states was going to open this movie for two weeks. So it's basically like, get ready. <laughs> the next two weeks are going to suck. Um, we opened the theater, and it would think it was an 11.30 a.m. show. Sold out the first screening. 11.30 a.m. on a Friday afternoon for basically a horror film speaks to your fuck for the rest of these screenings. <laughs> it's all about to get worse. So we proceeded that day. I think by 6 o'clock we had sold out every show that night uh, and every show the next day. And then eventually we were sort of working that pattern where it was every other day, every other day, you were selling out that far in advance. So that was great to have that success. That was great to test our staff. Our staff really liked, like, wow, there's 80 million people in our theater today. I've never had to do that before. We've had to make all this popcorn for everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, we were keeping the money together. No one got robbed. You know, no one got hurt. Um, all that stuff was going great. Um, about day four, though, the little aspects of this film really started to amount to a big problem. Uh, the film was shot shakily, um, as they used to be. Um, <laughs> which, when you do, when you're shooting an independent film and it's real shaky, um, that's great on like a TV screen this size. But as we all know, those of us who get sick watching that, a giant screen means you're going to get dizzy, and chances are you're going to throw up. <laughs> so imagine two screens worth of The Blair Witch Project for two weeks. I think we did the math that if three people puked the show, which was actual, uh, <laughs> uh, multiply that by two screens, so that's six, multiply that by six shows a day. I can't do math anymore beyond that. Thank you. So 36, after that, 36 puke piles a day. Uh, at the Mayan Theater, uh, which given, too, that you had 25 minutes to turn the film around uh, was awesome. 
And so about day five is when the staff broke down. We lost someone because the popper stopped working. Like the person literally, they'd been there for two, three years, and the popcorn popper stopped working. They literally grabbed their jacket and walked out the door. Um, Every, every little thing, I think the, the best puke stories with that is uh, it was probably the middle of the first week and we were, you know, all on edge and nervous and I remember a little kid coming out. He was probably about 12, 12 years old, came out in the lobby and just kind of sauntered out and I had just finished, like, helping sweep and clean the, lo- the little tiny lobby area and he kind of looked at me weird and I thought he was going to ask, like, hey, where's your bathroom? And... I said, hey, what do you need? And he looked me right in the eye and then just threw up <laughs> all over, all over the lobby. Being an authority, if it, being a manager, the house manager meant, we'd like to keep it as being a nice guy. I liked to, if something awful like that happened, I like to take care of it because I didn't feel the staff was getting paid enough um, <laughs> to deal with that on a consistent basis. So... First major, and God, he like drank a Slurpee or something before. It was like, it wasn't pretty. Um, I also got to watch a movie, a whole 400 people empty out of a theater. And a woman in a fancy like fur coat was popping out like, no, it wasn't so bad, it wasn't so scary. As she didn't notice that the woman behind her threw up all over her coat <laughs> on the back. I was busy doing something, so I had to let that happen for like 30 seconds before I could go over and help her out. Anyways, the apex of, of tension and torture that happened during this, we were, all, we were all done. This was probably the second weekend, so the second exclusive weekend. We were counting the minutes until that following Thursday. Um, we'd had issues. One time we oversold a show by 115 people because of the computer system. We had to rearrange something and keep those 115 people out. Um, we had a, in our, like, exhaustion, we had managed to still have a nice moving machine. So we had an ability to keep 400 people lined up outside the Mayan on one way, going down and around the block. And then the next show that was going to be upstairs, the smaller theater, would start on the other side of the mine. And you've always been to the mine, so you know how the doorways are. So we've got a busy show in. People are starting to line up for the next show. We have the problem often. People like to get something for free. And a lot of people would come up with a popcorn bag they found in the trash and say, oh, I dropped my popcorn. Can I get another popcorn? And you knew it wasn't their popcorn. Uh, They'd pull it out of the trash. And very often they just wanted a refund so they could have that 275 in their pocket that they didn't actually spend. We could see it a mile away. My staff was trained on it. The staff was busy. A woman came up and said, oh, my boyfriend scared me and I dropped my popcorn. Can I just get a refund on it? And she didn't have a bag or anything. And I said, well, you're going to need to bring a bag out. I need to have some kind of damage or proof that you purchased it. She got mad and took me to task. I couldn't really deal with it much more but just listened and nodded while she talked about the Better Business Bureau and you're an asshole and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> All over popcorn. And I was really not into it. Um, but I proceeded to tell her, look, ma'am, if you can bring back the bag, I will give you your refund. And she huffed and shook and then went back in her theater and didn't come back. 
So I was like, okay, end of that. I called her out and it was over. Reset, reset. 400 people line up. 115 people line up. Uh, I think, and this is the middle of the summer, so we got to a point where it was like a 98-degree evening. You know the air conditioner at the mine does not work properly. So there's that added. We'd been cleaning up puke. We'd been cleaning up popcorn. It was great. So that movie that that woman was in gets out. I'm busy prepping something, helping other people, having an interview with more staff that we'd like to bring in during this time because we lost, I think we lost four people in a two-week period. Um, when uh, the movie comes out and I'm upstairs and I hear that woman come out and go up to our concession uh, person, whose name is Gina, and said, hi, uh, here's the popcorn bag that I dropped and I'd like you to tell your manager that he can shove it up his ass. <laughs> I heard this. <laughs> and immediately looked down from upstairs. Didn't want to say anything, didn't want to deal with it. Uh, Gina, who was kind of a shit starter, uh, she said, oh, okay, hold on one second, ma'am. And she ran upstairs and she said, hey, Keith, this customer over here wanted me to tell you that you can shove this up your ass. <laughs> so I quietly went downstairs <laughs> and just asked the woman, Hi, did everything work out okay? Did you have a good time? And she said, no, you can go fuck yourself. You can go fuck yourself. All this stuff is stupid. The movie was stupid. You're stupid. I don't give a shit about it. Da, 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 da. So when I just, it just turned to buzzing after a while. <laughs> um, then her boyfriend comes out of the bathroom, and she goes over to him, and I hear more buzzing, 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 but it's just like, there's the asshole. Fuck himself. Popcorn. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so then her boyfriend comes up to me, and it's just like, you know, you're a real asshole. <laughs> and that kind of, I don't know what it was about that simple statement just uttered in that, like, you're a real asshole that just broke me. <laughs> the woman and her boyfriend started walking outside, and I just hit no cash on the register. Grab two dollars and seventy-five cents, which I didn't. She did probably didn't pay for that popcorn. I'm pretty sure. I can be an authority on that notion that she <laughs> probably didn't pay for that. I rolled the quarters up in the two dollars. Went outside. At this point, Gina could see what was going on, and grabbed the rest of the floor staff. and was like, "Hurry, hurry! He's going outside." <laughs> Open the doors to the theater. There's 400 people tired, waiting in line on this side, 115 on this side. Everyone's hot and sweaty. Everyone's talking and gabbing. And that woman and her boyfriend are starting to walk that way. And I just said, hey, lady. <laughs> just sort of turn around. Meanwhile, I hear, suddenly notice that the other two lines have shut up. Because <laughs> they're about to get the real movie that they, uh, <laughs> they didn't know they were coming to get. I just stood there and I said, here's your fucking refund, and just threw the wad of money at her. 
it, it missed landing anywhere near her, but perfectly hit her boyfriend square in the forehead. Um, at that point, he came trudging over, about to rip my neck off. Uh, but I was delighted to notice that my lovely staff, who had sort of worked through this terror and torture of all this stuff, um, had formed a kind of angel wing around me. And Gina was the first person to step just in front of me and just stare at the guy and say, don't you fucking try it. The guy promptly just kind of shook his head and walked away, grabbed his girlfriend's hand, and they took off. And suddenly there was this erupting of cheers from the 515 people waiting in line. So we all probably went back in, popped some more popcorn, let in the 400 people, let in the 115 people, Started the movie on time, cleaned up six piles of puke, <laughs> and uh, it was on my walk home that night. I lived about six blocks from the theater. That uh, I walked home, just sort of turning everything over in my head. Couldn't have been happier actually, with just feeling, you know what? I've gotten to a point where I built this staff. That I was a nice enough guy to be a manager, that the staff would want to kind of rally around. And, and defend in the stupidest of situations. Um, and I kind of like that. And then, before I know it, I, was, I woke up on the lawn of a place, uh, two, two apartment buildings for mine, uh, by the sprinkler. So that was really just because I, we were there till 4 in the morning every day, and then had to be back at 11. But I was okay with that. That was actually, <laughs> it was nice to get some rest on this nice cool lawn and woken up by a sprinkler. But all of that all together uh, just reminds me why I work hard every day to uh, deal with movies only, really, as best as I can. Uh, because it's easier to say, oh, you didn't like that movie? I'm sorry about that. Than to uh, fathom wadding up another ball of cash and throwing it at some angry one's face. Um, people don't get so angry about movies you pick because ultimately they realize that they paid the money to go see it, so it's their own fault if they don't like it. But um, that's kind of, that makes me happy that I'm sort of in the place I am. I can look back on the good times and know that at one time I was truly an authority and I kind of got through it. So, there we go. Thank you. Our last storyteller, we have a special guest all the way from Los Angeles. <laughs> That's in California. <laughs> uh, she's a comedian, and you can find her on Twitter uh, using your intuition and the keyboard. Uh, please welcome Amber Tozer. one you guys are so patient like sitting here listening to people talk about themselves i'm like that's what we like to do because we need attention um all right okay 
So, all right. So, authority. The power to enforce laws, exact obedience, command, determine, or judge. That sounds scary. (laughs) Um, Authority has always frightened me, but luckily as I get older and more cranky, I'm sure I'm just one speeding ticket away from telling a cop to fuck off. Or maybe one day I'll tell my boss that everyone thinks she's an insane, sad lady, and if it wasn't for all the money she's... she has, she'd be as use, as useful as a dead battery, which is not very useful, you guys. But until then, I'm just going to continue to kiss ass. <laughs> I'm so, I've always been really afraid of authority. Like, I don't know, just sort of like cringe at the idea that somebody could judge me. You know, even though it, it, it's all fake in my, like we're all humans, but anybody that has like, uh, who could say you're bad or you're good. It's really scary. And uh, so the first person to have authority over me uh, were my parents, of course. And my dad never really told me what to do. He only told me what not to do. Or after I did something, he'd be like, why did you do that? And then, he, then he'd turn into a, skein, uh, a mean, scary monster. And he instilled so much fear into me that I have to do stand-up comedy now because I'm sort of fucked up. And, uh, and I think he loved me just enough for me not to become a stripper. So a couple of bike rides we went on. Uh, I'm all good now. But my mom, thank God for my mom. She's always been pretty cool, and she's in the audience. This is probably – so I'm, like, editing as I'm reading this. No, she's always uh, – my mother's always been amazing. And uh, I think, like, as a little girl, too, if you, like, if you have a cool mom, like, you, you know, the second that she walks in the door, you're like, ah. Oh. You know, I was thankful for her because she told me what to do. And I think kids like structure in a way. I think although they, you know, they might like whine and complain, I think a kid who is sort of told what to do at a young age, it feels comforting. Otherwise, they're like, what am I, you know, I'm four years old. Oh, I can drink a beer? Uh Uh-oh. So I think it's, you know, I think it's like it's necessary for this, this, you know, authority because you feel safe. So, uh so for my mom, you know, she was always there, and uh, she, was, she was a little pushy. She, uh, she told me I should be a gymnast, a basketball player, a volleyball player, a, soc- a soccer player, a softball player, and an honor student. So I was like, all right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I did all those things. And, uh, I, did, and uh, I just think, and I was thankful because I was like, oh, okay, that's what you should do. Again, you know, we need structure. And what – Boggles my mind, or you know those pe- those people who are like they know what they want to do at the age of, of three. They're like, oh yeah, I knew at the age of three that I wanted to be an astronaut, and then they become an astronaut. You're like, fuck you. <laughs> like really, you really? It was that easy for you? You didn't spend like 20 years of your life doing things that you didn't want to do to figure yourself out. Suck it. There's this guy. There's this uh, famous violinist that I, I was very lucky to meet. This guy, Josh Bell. I don't know. He's whatever. He's, he's you know him? Oh, okay. Yeah, he's, like, huge. He's, like, the, the one of the best. And he said that when he, he was three, he took apart a dresser drawer, and he put um, rubber bands across the drawer and was, like, he, he had, like, a sword or a stick or something, and so he just made a makeshift violin. And his parents were psychologists, so they were like, oh, my God, 
this kid, you know, he wants to play the violin. So they put him in violin lessons, and now he's like, he's like a, a protege and, like, travels the world, plays with Sting, blah, blah, blah. But if his parents were like, what the fuck are you doing with that drawer? Get those rubber bands back in the bathroom! Like, he'd be fucked up. He'd have, like, this fear of dresser drawers. It's like... His room would be a mess, you know what I mean? Like, he'd, like, hang himself with a rubber band. That's disturbing. But, you know, it's amazing how, like, parents, like, shit, you know, they shift us. And and anybody who you look up to, uh, you know, however they guide you is very important. And um, so after, you know, my parents... I was very sporty, thanks to my mom, and, I, and I, don't, I don't know what she saw in me. I don't know if it was, like, hand-eye coordination or you noticed that I'm, like, a she-dude. Were you like, oh, my baby girl's a boy. Uh, let's give her some shoulder pads and throw, like, get on the wrestling team. I don't know, but I appreciate I I, 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 I was so happy to play sports, but then I, I got a college basketball scholarship and this is when it went south. Are, are there any other, like, anybody other college athletes here? Melissa, you. Oh, you played? Yeah. What'd you play? Softball? Were your coaches psychos? Yeah. A college coaches are a different breed of authority. They're, they're insane. They didn't make it to the Olympics or whatever. And so you gotta make it to the best you. I didn't, so you ought to! And their eyes bulge out of their head, and they're like they te- they're, they spit teeth at you, and they grow back. They're like sharks; their teeth grow back right away. <laughs> and then they eat you, and then your your soul is ripped out of your body. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but I I played uh, college basketball, and um, I wrote all this shit down. What the fuck? I wrote, I read this like at three o'clock today and I started eating meatballs and then I was like, I am tired. So, uh, so all of this is like, yeah, dot, 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 like, uh, yeah, so maybe, so I don't even know why I wrote this. Oh, but, um, okay. So I, I was playing, I played a uh, college basketball and my coaches, they were, they were a lesbian couple, which was cool. You know, assistant coach, head coach, lovers. And there were a few other lesbians on the team. And it wasn't a big deal because there was, like, you know, if you play college sports, there's, like, there's of course, there's lesbians everywhere. But they wanted to make it a big deal. Like, if someone else was a lesbian, they were like, Sarah's a lesbian. And we're like, yeah, we made out with her and we're not even gay. Like, it doesn't, we, nobody cares. Nobody fucking cares. But they were very involved in our in our personal lives, and they were just crazy, and they were scree- and they were mean. It was like, I d- I don't know if it was because I was I was so afraid of them, and I took everything they said so seriously, and I was always crying. I was like, I don't want to play anymore. And I don't know if it was because I had a bas- I had a scholarship, so that was huge. I you know I didn't want to have to pay for college, and you know like when you're 19 when. So- you think I always thought I was in the wrong like once you get older and somebody says you're wrong you're like fuck you but when you're like 19 you're like maybe I'm wrong and your shoulders like hinge off your body but I don't know it was just that combination of like I have to keep the scholarship and I'm not good enough 
And you know, when you're when in high school, like I was good in high school, but in college, everybody was just as good as me or way better. And they're like Amazon ladies, and I was like, nah, nah, nah. and they're like, rah. And so I was like, I hate everything. I hate my life. I just was so fucking miserable. And these coaches were crazy. And uh, so, and they were always screaming at me like, Tozer, what's wrong with you? And I never had an answer. Like, I didn't, I just was like, I don't know. But I, in retrospect, I just wish I would answer them. Like, uh, I, I have a watered up napkin and I'm using it as a makeshift tampon and I'm terrified. <laughs> you know how you do those things when you're a young girl, when you're like, I should have just got a tampon. <laughs> or like, Tozer, what's wrong with you? Um, I'm pretty sure I inherited a mental illness and there is no cure. Uh, because I have alcoholism, and um, <laughs> and I do, and it, it's a family disease, but uh, <laughs> it's a family disease, and um, so I don't know, I just was like so fucked up, in my junior year, I, I, I ended up quitting, I talked to my mom, she was like, quit, you know, you're miserable, we'll figure it out, so she was supportive of that, and then after I quit, six other girls quit, and one of the girls, her father got a lawyer and sued them for sexual harassment. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and, you know, it was like all hearsay. Like, you know, all these these women who were just like brutally manipulative and just cross the line. They never like mess with me. I don't, I think the, here's the thing. I think the assistant coach like slept with one of the players, but it was consensual. I don't know. Melissa, you were there. What the hell? Did you, did you sleep? My friend Melissa's there. She played softball. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but something weird happened, but a lawyer got involved. The media got involved. It was in Colorado. It was like, it was university of Southern Colorado. Now it's like, I don't know, whatever. So, but the headlines were like, lesbian coaches uh, accused of sexual harassment. And like, the news crews were fly uh, flying in, interviewing us. And I thought it was so hilarious because I hated those bitches. And uh, the, 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 I was interviewed, and, they were, and, and I, had, I had just gotten this horrible bob haircut. I was just like, and I was like, had a fat face. Like, you know, in college when you just have a fat face. Like, your face is fat no matter what in college. You're just like, boom. So my cheeks were, like, hanging down in my shoulders, and I had a bad haircut. And they were like, what's going on? And I was like, I just want the truth to come out. And I, in my head, I was just laughing, but they kept looping it on the news. And I want, and everybody took me seriously. I was like, you guys, I was just kidding. Like, but it, it, it was very funny. And, um... So, the, the cool thing is, is, like, there was no, you know, how can you prove if, like, a, a lesbian sexually harasses you? Like, there's no, it was ridiculous. So, the, the coaches, what happened was, uh, the coaches got to keep their jobs, and as a player, you got to keep your scholarship, and you didn't have to play. So, it was fucking awesome. I was like, I'm so thankful these lesbians were perverts. Because now, my senior year, I don't have to, you know what I mean? And uh, so, I don't know. So that happened. But I, I was so, th it's, I like how life turns out sometimes, especially when somebody is torturing you. You know what I mean? Like, somebody, whether it's your boss or, like, a lover or a friend or whoever, somebody is torturing you, and then something happens, 
and it, all of that goes away. And it usually happens in every situation. So, you know, I, I, I was just thankful <laughs> that I, I just wish that I wasn't so tortured by them. Or I would have known, like, but I'm not a psychic. It wasn't like I went in my freshman year being like, oh, these bitches are going to get accused of sexual harassment. And my senior year is going to be free. No, I did not know that. But uh, anyway, so so that was a th- like one experience of how I was tortured by authority. I don't know what my point is. Um, but real quick, I will do... Um, I had a quick list of people who, okay, so after, after college, I moved, I moved to uh, New York, I, and I went by myself. I feel like I, I, was, I was in this box, like I was a good student, I was an athlete, I was very structured. It was like practice, school, you know, just do, be, ama- be great. And I was like, ah, so I just bought a one-way ticket to New York city. And I think it was just like this thing of like, I wanted freedom. I wanted to do what I wanted when I wanted to do, but then you have to get a job and then you have bosses. So it never fucking ends. It never ends unless you become like a, a recluse or something, which I tried for like six months. And then I had to get on medication. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm trying it all. So I'm just going to go through a quick list. I'm almost done. I, I'll do a quick list of the people that I encountered as my bosses. Uh, I had this one woman, Catherine. Her name was Catherine Branscombe, and she was a film distributor. And uh, I was sort of her assistant slash development associate. <clears throat> and she was super insane. In between phone calls, she would just tell me all, about all the abortions she had. And I was like, okay. And then uh, at one time we went to this conference together, and we shared uh, a hotel room and um, and I, wa- I, I we all went out that night and I walked in on her and she was in bed with this was my boss she was in bed with a guy so I just like went into the bathroom and flossed <laughs> until she left like no cavities that year <laughs> and then the guy left and I was like hey she was like oh um, I didn't have sex with him because he was married I was like congratulations I don't know uh so that was one of my, I don't think she needed a, an employee. I think she needed a friend. And uh, then there was a, this guy, Steve Carlos. I worked for him while he was being sued for extortion. Then this girl, Annalisa, who is totally normal. Now she's my Facebook friend. Lance, Dr- Lance Drucker, who slept at his, his desk. Miriam Garza, who was from Honduras and who'd always scream, oh, my God. Jo- John DeVore, who was a told everyone he was a 28-year-old MIT graduate who was actually a 22-year-old cokehead. Jackie Olson, a sweet lady who has a son with autism. Kevin Shinnick, an executive producer who was nice, who never talked to me. And all these people who I would consider, all of these people I would consider an uh, authoritative figure. And uh, I don't know whether it was because they were paying me or because I was seeking their approval. They influenced my actions and they put these invisible limits on what I thought I could not and couldn't do. Um, so I don't know if... I. Sometimes I was honest with these people. Sometimes I was manipulating them, or sometimes I was kissing their ass. I just think that we always become the people that we think uh, others think that we should be, especially like when it comes to authority. Does that make sense to you guys? Are you all right? That's the end of my rant. Thank you. I'm done. Thank you.
The Narrators Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrators Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>